Hey everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is a special share episode edition with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast, and we're here with Kristen Faulkner. This is her first appearance in two years. Um, it seems like you were on yesterday, Kristen. That was two springs ago, which is blows my mind. Um, we just had a conversation with you over on Andrew's podcast, talking about your background, the, the behind the music, as we call it. Now that we're over here in the in, in the racing section on Beyond the Peloton, we're going to dive into into your bike racing history a little bit, but mostly just what's going on with you currently and what's happened since we last spoke. Um, Andrew and I have been debating though all week. I want to get your take on this. So you were at Strada Bianchi, great solo breakaway. Two SD Works riders kind of muscled the way by you on the on the final climb. I liked your move over, by the way, on Demi Volnering. Don't let her by. That was the correct move. They kind of have a little kerfuffle at the top. This stands in stark contrast to last weekend again, Webblegem, where Wout Van Aert gave hit the win to his teammate Christophe Laporte. What's your take on this? Like, was that lame? Should should teammates be fighting it out for the win? It's a great question. I think it depends on the goal. Um, well, I, I think there's a lot of things. I mean. I think the the issue with Strada Bianchi wasn't that they battled it out. The issue was that they never talked about it. And so I think if you want to battle it out with your teammate, that's totally fine. It's great for the viewers, but they should say that at some point while they're racing and say like, hey, we both want the win. Let's battle it out. Like, let's just let the best man win, best woman win. But that never happened. And I think that's what created the drama. And so I think on any team, I, I, I think um, there's a time to let someone win. So in the case of Trek, when Elisa Longo-Borghini, um, when Gaia let Elisa Longo-Borghini win on the climb, it's because Elisa was going for GC and she won those bonus seconds. And so it actually made sense to decide who was going to be the winner because it, the GC was more important to them than the stage win. Um, for something like Ghent, like, you know, that's kind of the DS's call. But I think no matter what happens, I do think teammates should talk about it. They should agree that they're going to race each other or they should agree that one of them's going to win. But either way, they should come to an agreement. And what happened with SD Works, the problem wasn't that they battled it out. The problem was that they never talked about it. When should that conversation take place? I think it should have happened... Um, Probably while they were chasing me, um, or at least the DS should have said to them, you guys can battle it out. Uh, <laughs> apparently that conversation never happened, though. Um, so I actually would say that's on the DS to not not make that call. And it's also on the riders themselves not to communicate that. I mean, um, they knew that the hill climb was probably going to be the determining factor in who won. It, it ultimately wasn't. like It was down to the sprint. But um, they knew that they weren't going to have time to chat about it on the time. And so I think it should have happened when they knew they did have time to chat about it, which is while they were pulling together. And um, they should have at least asked the question to BBS or asked each other, how do you feel? And if they said, I feel good, and you're like, okay, well, I feel good too. Let's battle it out. Or like, let's go, you know, let's each try to go for the win. Let's see what happens at the top of the climb, you know, things like that. But that conversation never happened. And I think... That's what caused the bad blood. Uh, perhaps, so maybe you're you're the maybe you're the problem. Maybe they thought they weren't weren't going to catch you and they didn't want to talk about it, and they were surprised <laughs> that they caught you. I mean, that's like the only explanation I can think of. It was a very 
it was very interesting to watch from from our perspective. I'm glad it happened, but I still can't quite believe that that happened. You know, I think what's interesting though about it is it's not it's actually not unique to bike racing. So if you like zoom out and you look at what happened, it was two colleagues making assumptions about the other. One made the assumption that oh, I made it to the top of the climb first and therefore I win. One. The other teammate made the assumption we're going to the line. And so ultimately, it was a workplace miscommunication. That happens in finance, that happens at McDonald's, that happens in cycling, it happens all the time. And I think the greater lesson to take away is we can never make assumptions about what anyone else is thinking or what their intents are when we work with them, when we race with them, anything. And it just goes to show the importance of communication. Anytime you're working with someone or anytime you want something from someone, um, you need to say what you want. <laughs> and I think that's like the bigger lesson that all of us can learn from Strata Bianchi is like workplace miscommunications happen because people don't communicate. <laughs> and uh, so I think everyone can learn something from that, not just cyclists. Yeah, when I was reading coverage after the race and listening to the post-race interviews, I, I'm obviously I'm not a professional racer. I had never heard of anyone uh, having a personal rule around, I got to the top of the hill first, therefore I get to win the sprint. That was an interesting one. I'm, Kristen, from your point of view, at the moment at which they caught you and went by you, how did you, how were you feeling? And like mentally, what was going on once you saw that happen? Because you did come so close. Mm. Yeah. So I, I knew that they were going to be stronger climbers than me. I could feel my body was like really tired, you know, and I knew that the climb didn't particularly suit me. Like I'm a good climber, but maybe on like a 6% or sub 6% climb, something like the climb up to Santa was too steep for what I specialize in. Um, so I knew it was going to be really tough. Um, and so when I hit the base of the climb and I knew that they were really close, I was like, I just have to give everything. And then when they passed me, I wasn't super surprised. I was disappointed, but I still was like, I'm going to give everything I can to the top because anything can happen. Like, honestly, it's a bit of a maze when you get to the top, like someone could take a wrong turn, someone could crash on a corner, anything could happen. So for me, I do what I always do, which is like, don't panic. Don't get to it. Like, don't have any emotions involved. Like when I'm racing, there are no emotions. It is all just like, what can I do about the situation at hand? And so in that moment, it was like, okay, well, this is unfortunate. What can I do? I can keep moving. Hopefully something happens and I catch one of them before the finish, but I can't control that. I can only control my effort right now. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Um, so like when I race, I'm very, I'm very matter of fact. Uh, I don't really let my emotions get involved. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was disappointed when they passed me for sure. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting, though, like how they finished it. I mean, you're right on the point about Demi getting to the top of the climb and like assuming that was a finish line. Like I, I also haven't heard about that. But um, yeah, it's just everyone has like a different idea of how the end of that race went down, I guess. <laughs> um, and she yelled but, at you know, expletive at her teammate. She like audibly screamed a very bad word <laughs> to her as they were coming over the line. And yeah. I, couldn't be I couldn't believe I was watching it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not a good look when that happens in public, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's not a good look if it happens behind closed doors, but, it ha you know, it's a, it's a much worse look when it happens on camera in public. Um, you know, the earlier question, though, like, I, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with teammates battling out. Like, I really don't. I think, um, I think it's totally fine. I think it's it's fun for fun for the spectators, and actually could make it could be more fun for the riders too because you don't wonder what if. It's a chance for you to test your skills. It's a chance for you to have a little fun. It's like no one ends up resentful. Um, I don't think it's bad to watch teammates battle it out. I actually don't. I think what's bad is when they don't communicate about it. I think as long as you're on the same page about the fact that you're going to battle it out, I think it's fine. I think it's great. Yeah, I think it's... it's, Candy. I mean, I guess technically Laporte and Van Art committed sporting fraud because you're not allowed to collude in a way that determines the outcome of a race according to the UCI code. So... Technically, they broke the rules. Outside of that, it's just kind of, I don't, I think it's fun, right? It, it's like they, they got the front page of Lakeep. It's a great story. I much preferred the two women racing it out. I thought that was a more interesting way to finish mm. a race. Yeah. You know, it just, there's so many dynamic dynamics at play that as spectators, we might not be privy to, you know, like maybe one rider wants another teammate to race for them at another race down the road or maybe this is their home course you know sometimes an italian rider wants to win an italian race and then when it's a french race they'll race for the french teammate so sometimes it's more important to you to win on home turf you know so there's that sometimes you're racing for gc sometimes um you know there's situations like at uae where elisa longo borghini had a better chance of getting the world tour leaders jersey and if one of your riders has the World Tour Leader jersey or whatever ranking your lead rider has in the World Tour, that determines the position of your team car sometimes. And so sometimes you want your top rider to get the UCI points to help the position of your team car. So like there's so many other dynamics at play. Um, it's not just between the riders or wanting like we're going to be nice and let you win. Like it's not always just that. It's, it's usually more complicated. But I think, yeah, when there's a, a time and a place to let two riders battle it out and and have some fun. I mean, that's, that's bike racing. That's, that's actually where some of the fun happens too. So I just think it needs to be with good blood, you know, like, I think it's totally fine for two people to have fun racing against each other. That's what racing is. We all love that. Um, it just needs to happen in good faith with good communication and on good terms. So that was a great ride you had, I was just going to ask, did you, did you <laughs> yeah, go to that you. race from Thailand? It's been, I can't, like you were in a wedding in Thailand and then <laughs> No, I actually I had about a week in Girona before. So I came back from Thailand, had a week in Girona, and then I went to Strada Bianchi. And I actually was a reserve. I wasn't supposed to race, but then uh, I had a teammate get injured. So I filled in. Every result I've had on this team has been because I'm a reserve and was slotted in last minute. Interesting. So Giro, Tour de Swiss, Strada Bianchi, every single one. I, I do have a follow-up question regarding that transition from Thailand coming into the race and just generally with the different phase shifts you have where you're in a lot of different environments, as we talked about over on Choose the Hard Way, we know that managing everything off the bike is a very critical part of your approach. How do you how do you manage that when you're in different environments, different hotels, you're on the road, time zone changes? How do you maintain continuity around all of the stress management, down regulation, and recovery mm. off the bike? It's a great question. Um, for me, it is having routines that I can take with me anywhere in the world. So it's a bedtime routine. It's a morning routine. It's my coffee in the morning, or it's the way I fill my water bottles before I put them on my bike. Sometimes it is the flavor of gels I have in my pocket. Like <laughs> anything that sounds, anything that feels familiar 
that I can take with me when my environment's changing, the more stable I'm going to feel and the more, um, yeah, the more, uh, the less I, my external surroundings won't be able to rock me as much because my internal state will be so stable. And so I think whenever the external environment's changing so much, it's extra important to yeah, do things that feel familiar and feel comfortable and feel stable. And so for me, uh, like I, I drink matcha tea every morning and they didn't have matcha tea in Thailand. So I brought my own matcha tea. Well, they didn't have matcha tea at this hotel we were staying in. So I brought my own matcha tea. Or I, I went to bed and woke up every single night and morning at the same time. Or I um, I texted the same friend, good night and good morning, you know, depending on where they were in the world. So I have these little routines that I take with me whenever I'm traveling a lot. And I find that I rely on those routines that give me a sense of stability when everything around me is changing. What is your sleep routine? I am very much of an early to bed, early riser. So usually I'm in bed at 10. Today is an exception <laughs> because Thank of the you podcast. For making an exception. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I usually... I usually like to wind down starting around 9, 9.30. And so that means like quiet time. I don't do a lot of social stuff at night. I will usually call a friend or call my parents, just call someone. I find it's an easy way to relax. And then, um, yeah, usually uh, I brush and floss my teeth. I'm very big about teeth hygiene. Um, I, you know, I honestly just like, I like to be in the house and not doing too much social activities after 9 p.m. That's really my big thing. Uh, call a friend and then get ready for bed. I usually read a little bit before I go to bed for like half an hour. And um, I need a very quiet environment and a very dark environment. I need to be dark and quiet. <laughs> and um, yeah, if I'm gonna be some, if I'm staying in a hotel that's on the highway, I bring earplugs. If I'm staying in a room with big windows, I bring an eye mask. Like I'm very, I like to have a very consistent routine about my sleep. And then I usually wake up on my own naturally at like 6 or 7 a.m. just because I go to bed pretty early. And um, I would say I sleep eight hours a night. It's something I've always really, really valued is sleep. I've never been someone to skip on my sleep or brag about how much, how little sleep I have. Like even when I was in high school and college, I was, uh, my friends called me Cinderella because on weekends I was always home by midnight. Um, and uh I just have always been like an early to bed, early to rise person. And I don't compromise on my sleep. I'll compromise on a lot of other things, but I won't compromise on my sleep. It's something that's really important to me. Do you bring electrical tape with you when you're on the road to tape over lights in hotel rooms? No, I usually, I bring an eye mask instead and I find it okay. blocks pretty much everything out. Have yeah, you tried? But I do bring my eye mask with me. I have this really good sleep routine where I sleep like two hours at a time and then like get woken up by like a baby for a few hours. And then like <laughs> I'm, I'm getting like four or five hours a night. It's fantastic. And I've never felt better. So I, I, I could suggest that instead of like a nice eight, nine hour block. Oh man, I have so much to look forward to one day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get all my beauty sleep now while I can. Yeah, just stash up on it. And how did you, <laughs> how was the cycling in Thailand? Like, were you getting good training there? I was shocked. So um, the reason I I didn't actually plan to race Strata in a bunch of other races um, is because I had no idea what to expect from the training over there. 
the urban areas were the worst cycling I've ever experienced in my life. Like super dangerous, not many shoulders, people all over the roads, cars, bikes, everything. Uh, but the rural areas where I went were amazing. The pavement was super smooth, super new, shoulder on the road. I did a 30 minute effort on flat roads with no intersections, no stoplights. The weather was great. There were bodegas every two kilometers with water and snacks and bananas and fresh coconut water. There was some climbing, there were some flats. Um, so I actually found the training there to be really, really good. You just have to know where to go and you have to avoid the really urban areas. So I would totally go back there for a training trip. Um, and actually it was about 95 degrees when I was there, it was quite hot. And I think the heat training was actually quite productive because it can be very good for you to be in heat training. I don't think I was, I, I don't think I was there for long enough to have it an effect. I was there for less than a week, but um, I do think you could go there and get some really good heat benefits and some quality climbing and quality roads. What's your favorite place to train? As far as like that, as you mentioned, like the heat or the, you know, the temperature, the, the terrain and just like the culture of being there. I really like California. I really like Northern California. Um, it's never too hot. It's usually in the wintertime, it's never too cold. You can go out in the day and it's sunny. Um, and for me, I love the ocean. Like I grew up on the ocean. I've lived near water for most of my life. And so riding along Highway 1 along the coastline to me is just the epitome of freedom and adventure and beauty and good riding. And I love it. So that's my favorite place. Um, but Toronto's good. It's just not... It doesn't have that same feeling of home that I get when I'm in California. And Kristen, when you talk about NorCal riding and the one, had you been there this winter, you would have needed a <laughs> kayak probably to ride most of the, <laughs> yeah, most of the ride. Actually, right? <laughs> in January, early January, right? It was so rainy. I actually, I was not looking forward to going to team camp because I just wanted to spend more time home in California. And then all the rain came and I was like, get me to team camp as soon as possible. And um, I ended up flying back to, to Spain for team camp. But yeah, it was unrideable. It was so bad. But I feel like every year California has like a month in the calendar where you can't ride because there's like tons of rain or there's fires or there's smoke or there's something. So that's the only downside is occasionally you get some natural disaster like that. That's how I ended up in Maine. Now I'm just freezing cold seven months out of the year. And when you're in NorCal, do you have a favorite training route? Like, do you like, are you South Bay, Old La Honda, Pescadero? Do you like to go up to Point Reyes? Like, what do you like mm. to do? It depends if I'm living in San Francisco or Menlo Park. Um, for sure, my favorite ride from San Francisco, and I think my favorite ride maybe in the world is, um, yeah, it's from San Francisco up to Bovine Bakery along Highway 1. and um, yeah, Mount Tam and doing those roads. And my second favorite ride would be to Pescadero. Yeah, those two. I really like Pescadero. It's such a quaint little town. And um, yeah, you get a little bit of the water as well. I just, you know, it feels, sometimes you get on these roads and there's like, you um, sometimes on the roads to Pescadero, there's just no cars. And you just see mountains, you see ocean, you see a little bit of everything and you just feel like it's you, your bike and nothing else. And it can be a pretty beautiful feeling. 
Andrew and I have been debating. You got to get the artichoke bread too. Next time you're in Pesca. Absolutely. Oh, I was going to sure say, I'm just thinking yeah. about the artichoke I bread for too. I sure have had the artichoke bread for sure. In fact, I think one time I ate an entire loaf of my own and I was like, I don't even think I can ride back. This is horrible. <laughs> so now I don't feel pressured to eat the whole thing when I go alone. I definitely have had up to half of a loaf of artichoke bread just shoved into a jersey yeah. pocket after <laughs> after like totally getting bloated at that bakery. So. I ate like as much as I could and then I was like, I don't want to waste it. It's so good. And then I brought a half a loaf home one time or however much of the loaf was left. And I got home and it was like sweating, crinkled and gross. And I was like, okay, I cannot eat this. Like it is covered in my back sweat. <laughs> so it went it threw away in the trash. But um I was determined to not waste it. I tried my best, but Chapeau. A- Andrew and I have been kind of marveling at the amount of time like a lot of these men's writers, these men's writers, these male writers are spending like at altitude and at top of these volcanoes mm. at the Canary Islands, Sierra Nevada, et cetera, et cetera. Are you working any of those type of trips into your training plan for the year? Do you just generally kind of stay in Girona when you're not at the races? It's a good question. Um, I personally have not spent a bunch of time at altitude. I have only been at altitude once uh, in my entire life, actually, for training. Um, but it is definitely becoming more and more common in the women's peloton. Like, I know several riders that went to altitude just for the Tour of Flanders. They'll go back again for the summer races, maybe back again before the World Championships. And so I think it's something we've seen evolve a lot in the men's peloton in the last few years. And a lot of riders have moved to Andorra. Some teams like Ineos have tons of riders in Andorra. Um, And they even have team cars there. And they'll be training together and things like that. And I'm starting to see it become uh, part of the women's calendar um, quite consistently among teams. Like when a rider is making their calendar for the year, they'll pick their peak races they build an altitude before it, and then they'll build in all the other races around that. And so it's definitely becoming more of a priority. Uh, for me personally, the reason I haven't done it is uh, kind of twofold, well, threefold. Um, the first is that I respond quite well to heat training, and it's usually not as hot when you go to altitude. And so for me, training in 100 degrees in Verona is probably maybe as effective as me going to altitude. Um, and so I don't really feel like it's as necessary when I can be somewhere that's super hot. Uh, the second reason is for me, stability is really important. And the more I'm traveling, the less stable I feel. And for me, one of the biggest indicators of my performance is my mental health and my sense of stability. I just don't want to travel a ton while I'm traveling the rest of the year for racing. Um, and then the third thing is that, um, I end up... (laughs) I've been a reserve a lot in races the last few years. My calendar, I, I usually don't have these big blocks without racing. And if I do have a big block without racing, I usually use it to go back to the United States. And so because of that, I am either like racing periodically where I don't have enough time to go to altitude. And if I do have enough time to go to altitude, I'll just go back to the States. So those are kind of the three reasons why I haven't done it much, but it's definitely becoming more common. Kristen, two quick follow-ups for you on that. Number one, we don't hear a lot about altitude tents anymore. Mm. Are those are those still popular? I was looking into the science on PubMed to see if I could find any meta-analyses because anecdotally, I've heard that because you don't replicate atmospheric pressure, that they're actually not as effective as going to the volcano uh, over in Tenerife. But 
are those still in vogue? That's my first question. Then mm -hmm. my second one is with heat training, are you seeing similar increases in hematocrit through a different mechanism with heat training or what is the benefit? Mm. Um, so first question or altitude tense. Um, it is a thing, but I find that nowadays teams are willing to subsidize, subsidize altitude camps for riders. And so uh, because it's slightly better and it's more enjoyable, to walk around your house than it is to sit in a tent, more people are opting to go to altitude. Um, I think the second thing is that, uh, but, but I do think the tents are more common among smaller teams with smaller budgets where in altitude, they can't necessarily afford a trip to altitude, but they can't afford a tent that they should. They'll all stay so, in one tent. Cofidis, <laughs> <laughs> well, you can just party. say the name of the team. <laughs> you'll, you'll get to really know your teammates well. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I just, people who, who can't afford frequent altitude camps, like they'll, they'll buy a tent instead. Um, so that's the first reason why I don't think it's as common as much in the world tour. Um, second is, I do think there's a level of skepticism around whether they're as effective as real altitude, real altitude. Uh, I think I personally haven't done too much deep dive, but I've done a little bit and the research I've seen, or at least the chit chatter, the chatter that I've seen is that they're not quite as effective. Um, and the third thing is, I think it's, yeah, it's just not as enjoyable. Like people would rather go to altitude and be able to walk around their house at altitude and, as opposed to living in a tent. So I think those are the main reasons why they're not quite as popular as they used to be. And as we see the woman's budgets growing, more people kind of, more teams are, their, their budgets are growing, they're subsidizing altitude camps. And so the riders are no longer having to pay for it themselves. And so you just see more and more riders doing it. And you're seeing teams also organize team camps at altitude before some of the big grand tours like the Giro or the Tour de France. So um, to answer your second question about heat, um, so I actually haven't measured, um, like done any blood tests before altitude or heat. Um, I probably should, like, uh, but I haven't done it. It's all been very anecdotal. Like I noticed when I spend time in the heat after a few weeks, um, my fitness is just much better. Like I feel better and it's always pretty miserable the first week or two, but then as I adapt to it, I, I don't notice it as much. Um, I'm not as sensitive to the heat. It doesn't bother me as much at all. Um, and I notice, for example, going to the Giro or the Tour de France, it's usually quite hot. And for me, I actually have a difficult time adjusting to the heat. And so for me to show up to a race where the temperature is really hot and I haven't yet adjusted to the heat, it's going to be really hard for me. But if I've spent that the last few weeks training in the heat, then I show up to the race and I'm already adjusted to the heat. And so part of it is like the, the benefits of heat training, um, where I think it does have a similar effect on your blood to altitude. Um, and it also like, it, like your body gets used to sweating a lot and there's other aspects to it. But for me, it's also um like there's the physiological adaptations but then there's also just getting used to riding in the heat so that i'm not shocked when i show up to a race and it's super hot and one of the challenges if you go to altitude before a race it's not going to be as hot as when you actually show up for the race because altitude's colder and so for me because i adjust so poorly to the heat uh like the first few days i don't want to shock my system by showing up to the Giro and having it be way hotter than i'm used to and having not adaptable to that so um, there's been like some reason, like I have a pretty big, uh, like if you're more muscular, your body tends to produce a lot more heat. 
And so for me, like I'm a quite muscular build for women. So uh, at least women in, in the women's peloton. So I might struggle a lot more with heat than someone who's really small and has a much bigger surface area to mass ratio. Um, and so for that reason, like I just find it harder for me to adjust quickly to heat. And so I need that adaptation leading into a race. And on the other side of COVID in the post COVID era, are you still using the trainer quite a bit? I mean, Spencer and I are big MyWoosh users, but I hear a lot of people have used a product called Zwift to, uh, to train at the pro level. Is that something that, or some other type of indoor training part of your regimen or is it all outdoors? Every Christmas when I go to Alaska, I am on Zwift for about 10 days. So I don't use Zwift during the season. Um, I usually use it when the weather's really bad or when I'm traveling to a place like Alaska where I can't ride outdoors. I find it's, um, it's actually quite effective. Like it gets me in shape really fast. I find it to be a highly productive tool and I'm always, it's actually nice to have sometimes in the winter time because, um, it's when I'm in a building phase and I always go home and then I'm actually more fit when I come back from Alaska, <clears throat> interestingly. And it's because I've been on Zwift. Um, but from like a mental standpoint, I really enjoy being out in the outdoors. I enjoy the sunlight. I enjoy riding. And so I find that if it's beautiful outside and I'm on Zwift, I might mentally crack uh, a lot faster or be less motivated. Um, but on days like in California, when it was dumping rain, it was a godsend to have Zwift. So I think um, in some ways, I'm actually glad that I'm forced to use it. Uh, I don't want to say forced because it's not that I don't enjoy it, but like I'm, I'm glad that there's a time and place for it in my life, like in Alaska on rainy days, things like that, because I do think it's quite beneficial. Um, but I'm also glad that I live in a place where I can ride outside as often as I want. We don't want our Zwift overlords to think that you're forced. Yeah, we we need <laughs> no. we need those exacts no, like, Zwift. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's the kind of thing you know. To be honest, though, I I would say like I don't. I don't love the thought of like going on Zwift, but I deeply appreciate the training benefits I get out of it. I do think it's quite beneficial to be um, like in ergo mode on the trainer. Um, it just forces your muscles to move in a different way. Like you can't ease up at all, you know? Um, and once I'm in it, I find it's fine. It's, it's actually just like getting started, which is always the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, once you have kids too, it's uh, it's your time's crunch. So Zwift actually feels like yeah. a much more efficient workout than going outside. You become like a crazy person. Like I don't even like descents because I feel like I'm wasting time. But you, you've got a long yeah. time before you get to that part of your life. But that's how when I was working in finance, I felt the exact same way about Zwift. I was still grateful for it. So you mentioned on Andrew's podcast that the Olympics are a big goal for you. Um, I assume 2024 Paris, probably on your calendar. If you don't mm -hmm. get selected for the team again, I, I will storm USA Cycling. I'm coming. You guys better select Kristen. But outside of that, like, what are your big goals for this season? Like, is the Tour de France Femmes a, a, a big goal? Is Giro d'Italia both world championships? Hmm. I've actually, I really want to focus on my time trial this year. Um, I think world's time trial is a really big goal of mine. And um, to get on the podium at the world championship would be a, a big goal of mine for the year in the time trial. Um, and kind of on that vein, I'm trying to focus on stage races that have a time trial in them. Um, so like the Vuelta coming up, will have a time trial and I might try to go for GC there. 
Um, the Tour de France has a time trial. Uh, TBD, if I try to go for GC, I think that has like a, the Tourmalet is a quite steep climb, um, a little steeper than what would normally suit me, but I would love to go for the time trial stage there and maybe some other stages at the Tour. Um, so I think it's a combination of, um, of time trialing and then also the Ardennes uh, coming up in April and, and some of the May races are really where I'm trying to peak. You, yeah, you got sixth at the world championships last year in the time trial. That's very good result. I think if correct me if I'm wrong, when we talked in 2021, you said you had done like three time trials in your life. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> last year was like my debut time trial year. Um, I had done one pro time trial, I think maybe two in my life in 2021. Um, and they both did not go well. I had like no idea what I was doing. Uh, a horrible position. Um, like in nationals, I like tried to take a sip of water in the middle of the time trial and I like couldn't get it back in the bottle case. <laughs> it was like laughable. It was all of so in fact, my, my roommate, uh, from Girona, she messaged me. So nationals was like my first real time trial. And, um, it was again, my first professional time trial. And, uh, it's my first time to, to Knoxville. It was like super hot. I wasn't at all adjusted to the heat. And my roommate messages me after, and she's like, Kristen, are you okay? Did you get a mechanical? Because I got sighted so poorly in the time trial. Like, she thought I got a flat tire or something in the middle. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, last year, I decided that I wanted it to be a goal of mine. So I focused on my position. I started spending more time on my TT bike. I started doing normal workouts on my TT bike and uh, won the Tour de Swiss time trial, won the Giro time trial. And then um, I had some goals for Worlds. Um, I wasn't unhappy with six, but um, I had had COVID in uh, July, and I never fully recovered from it, which is why I didn't do some of the races at the end of the season. And um, so I feel like going back this year, I have kind of a chip on my shoulder about that, and I want to get a better result at Worlds. So hoping I'm able to show up like fully fresh and healthy at Worlds and hopefully get on the podium for the time trial. It's such a, it's such a technical discipline, Kristen, and you clearly have demonstrated that you're amazing at it and have an even more opportunity to grow, but we've seen just how dangerous it can be for cyclists to train for time trialing because of the position required, speaking specifically of Froome and Egan Bernal and the incidents that they had. So as a pro athlete, how do you find a way to train safely in that position? I think the first is finding really good roads where there's not a lot of cars, where there's not a lot of stuff happening, um, not a lot of debris on the road. Um, I think that's like the first thing is just finding some roads you're really familiar with that are, you know, pretty flat or, or quiet. Um, I think like finding a position where you can, like, I, I think just like practicing over and over is really important as well. Uh, for me, uh, like having a head position <clears throat> where I could see in front of me, um, but not, you know, but still being arrow was really important. Um, but ultimately, I think the more time you spend on it, it's just like a regular bike. You know, imagine getting on your bike four times and then showing up to a race and expecting to do well. And the same is true with your TT bike. You can't ride your TT bike four times and expect to show up at a race and do well. And so um, in the same way, when you're learning on a road bike, you're not going to go to the busiest road and do this crazy descent the first time you ever get on a road bike. And I think sometimes what happens with time trialing 
is people forget what it's like to be a beginner, you know, <laughs> and they get on their TT bike and they go on these super busy roads and these super steep descents and they don't look in front of them and they, and they do all these things because they have so much confidence on their road bike. And they, they try to translate that to their TT bike and it's like, well, wait a minute, you kind of still need to take it slow. Like you're not, you might not be, like you might be one of the best in the world in your road bike, but you're not at the same skill level on your TT bike, even cornering, you know, and descending, like you're not going to be as good. And so I think sometimes we need to take like, um, like take a lot of humility. Like for me, at least when I got on my TT bike, I had to treat myself like a beginner last year when I got on it in like March, I was like, I need to start from ground zero. Like I need to completely treat this as I'm a beginner. Like I'm going to start with some really easy corners, get in the, slowly get more technical. And just kind of goes to my like checklist of like getting better and better at something. You know, I started doing more technical courses, started changing my position, but it all was the evolution, you know, and I had to treat it that way if I wanted to be safe. So I think, the logical transition from this question about the highly technical discipline of time trialing is to talk about the main streets of Silicon Valley. And when you were evaluating what direction to take your career as a professional cyclist, you went to the very highest level of the sport on the road. The direction that a lot of people go these days, though, is to put on a kerchief and to go after a multi-surface career or to put together a privateer program. What did gravel ever have any appeal for you? Was that something you were interested in doing? And why did you end up going the direction that you did? Yeah, um, <clears throat> it's a great question. I kind of saw two paths in front of me. The first was to say, keep my VC job and do gravel on the weekends and be part of the US gravel scene and then keep my job. That seems very exciting and safe. It also seemed like something I could do after I tried out road cycling for a few years, or it's harder to go the other way. So that's the first thing. Um, I also, second thing is I really wanted to go to the Olympics. That's always been a big goal of mine. And I, I couldn't do that if I only did gravel. Um, and the third thing is I was kind of ready for an adventure. And I felt like, like really going for it and living in Europe was a way to challenge myself in a completely new way. And I didn't feel like I felt like gravel would be challenging me, like maybe physically training for it, but I didn't think it would challenge me to grow as much as a, of a person as I would moving to Europe, trying a completely new thing on the world tour, working with a team um, and forcing myself to develop skills in the Peloton and like all these things that I was bad at. And so for me, those are kind of the three reasons why I chose to go the road route. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoy gravel. Like I have, like I ride gravel a lot in the off season and I absolutely have nothing against it. I love gravel races. And for sure, when I go back to the US, I want to do more of them. Uh, it's just the kind of right time, right place for me was road when I made my decision. Is there any discussion among world tour riders about what's happening in the gravel community? Like, did you or any of your peers discuss like, hey, who won BWR Arizona? Is that a like even on your radar? Europeans don't really follow any gravel racing, to be honest. Um, some of them find gravel interesting and they want to do a gravel race. But I've never overheard people on the world tour talking about any results from gravel in the U.S. It's the correct take. 
<laughs> they should not be worried about BWR Arizona. But are do you think you'll do anything like gravel world championships, like any of these European based, like UCI backed gravel races? Like, would, does that have any interest or appeal to you? Eventually, I think it would. Um, right now, I think I. It's kind of hard to get buy-in from the teams um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the first is that uh, road cycling has a has a tendency to want to do things the way they've always done things, and it can make me bang my head against the wall sometimes. Uh, but it's just really hard to get like people who manage teams in road cycling. They do it because they love road cycling. And they want you to be a road cyclist if you're working for them, because if they want you to be a gravel rider, they would run a gravel team. And so they can be kind of strict about those things. And so they're not as open to alternative types of riding if it conflicts with the road calendar. Um, the second thing is, yeah, the road calendar. Like if they want me at a race, I either need to be at the race or I need to be a reserve. And so if someone gets injured, I need to be able to call, be called in right away. And so even if I plan it on my calendar, there's a chance that I might get called off because, um, and called into a race because at the end of the day, they're going to prioritize the road. And then the third thing is sometimes it's the sponsors, you know, like who's the audience that they want to be in front of. Sometimes it's gravel, sometimes it's, it's road, but by and large in Europe, the sponsors want to be in front of more of a road audience because that's what they that's what they know. That's what they have planned for and budgeted for. And that's how they see it. So um, to answer your question, I personally would love opportunities to do a bit more gravel and mix it up in my schedule. But I find the constraints of being on a team make that really difficult because it's not just about what I want. It's about what's best for the team. And I have to be available to the team as they need me. Can you explain that it would be cool? If you went to Unbounded One and beat the men. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I will be home in June. So it's something I've like thought about, but um, I won't have been on a gravel bike for like over six months. And June is supposed to be my like relaxed time, my downtime. Um, it's the one month I can take off all year um, from racing. Well, during the race calendar. Um, so I don't want to do anything too crazy. But it could be fun to like show up and just have some fun and run with it. So we'll see. Your fans I just don't would love add... to see you do that. What? Your fans would love to see you just do a chill <laughs> 200 mile ride in Emporia, Kansas. You might have uh, don't. You might never recover from it. <laughs> it's a brutal race. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of the other thing is, you know, um, when I come, if I if I have the chance to come back to the states, it's because I it's because I want to see my friends and family. Like I can race the rest of the year, um, and so I only have a limited amount of time off. And if I'm going to do altitude before the Giro, and if I'm going to do nationals, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to you know. And so it can be challenging to like fit in all the travel, um, which would honestly be the main reason why I don't do it. Um, but it is a possibility I have flirted with a little bit in my head. So who writes your training plans? I assume you, you said, um, I think it was in the last podcast we did that you sometimes see your training for the day and it seems overwhelming, but you do it. It's, I assume that means someone is writing them for you and then you see them in your training peaks. Like, do you have a full-time coach? 
Yeah, I work with Mike Sayers. He's been my coach for about four and a half years. Um, but in the last year, he's given actually given me quite a lot of freedom over my over my training. Um, I would say all winter, pretty much, I did my own training. I came up with my own training plan. Um, and I would say he and I collaborate a lot more now, whereas before he kind of gave me my workouts, whereas now it's a much more collaborative process. I might say, you know, hey, I really want to focus on some one minute efforts this week and he'll give me a workout that has one minute efforts. Or I might say this looks too hard or this looks too easy or things like that. Um, and one of the things that I think uh, he's done quite well is when I feel really good, you know, I, he increases it. And when I don't feel really good, he can ease it off. And so he's very flexible that way. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes he'll give me a workout and I'm like, oh, I don't think I can do that. And then I'll do it and I'll be like, okay, he was right. So um, it's nice to have someone else do the training sometimes because it forces me to stretch myself in ways that I might not have thought I could. And then other times it's really nice to have control because I can do my training based on how I feel. So there's pros and cons to each and it's a bit of an ebb and flow, but it's, it works quite well uh, the way we have it set up now. So Kristen, I noticed you're wearing a whoop. I wonder if you ever adjust your workouts based on your recovery score or your sleep. No, but I, well, yes, but not based on my recovery score. I would say I'm quite good at knowing how I feel and I do a lot of things off of feel. Um, sometimes I use the whoop out of curiosity to be like, oh, um, no wonder I'm so tired. And we slept five hours last night. Um, <laughs> and so for me, it's more of a reference check to be like, oh, I'm really tired, but I did sleep really well. Why am I tired? Okay, well, it's not my sleep that's lacking. It's because I must have done a really big activity this week, or maybe I'm stressed, or all these other things. And so for me, it's it's not like oh, I'm I. It, for me, it's um, it's a way to understand a variable that impacts how I feel. Does that make sense? So if I'm fatigued, I can be like, is it because I had a lot of training this week? Is it because I didn't sleep that much? Is it because I'm stressed out about something? And so I can go through and look at these 10 different variables and figure out what it is. And it's nice to have the whoop because I can eliminate or figure out that variable. That's yeah, really that, what I use it for. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Today, my whoop told me that my six-year-old who has a high fever and has been sick for five days was kicking me for eight straight hours while I tried to sleep. <laughs> and that I had a terrible night of sleep. And I'm actually afraid that my family might be turning into zombies uh, somewhere out of earshot here right now, based on their, <laughs> their condition. <laughs> We're like an anti-advertisement for children, but <laughs> <laughs> you're in a great <laughs> job. The other yeah. way, they're great. Don't I love ask, my kids. Don't it's ask like Pampers to be a sponsor for your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I I love Pampers. Oh my god, I would do it for free. It's a great company, but <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. Love Procter and Gamble. Shout my out. Question now. Um, we were talking about the whoop. So I, I had a question for you. Um, where should we like look for you? What's your next big race? Um, where should we look for you? And then if people like want to get involved in women's cycling, watching it, like what's the one race you would suggest they watch? Mm. So my next races are the Ardennes, which will be Brabant's Appeal, followed by Amstel Gold, Flush Wallone, and Liege Bastogne Liege. Those will be my big races in April. You can tune into all four. 
on GCN Plus. I think if you are someone who's brand new to watching women's cycling and you've never watched the race, I would say you have to tune into the Tour de France. And the reason is that I think there's a lot of media and publicity around it now. And I think it can be quite inspiring to see women's sports reach such a level of publicity and cycling. And um, to, to witness that, I think, it's, is quite special. Um, other than Tour de France, I think Liège, best on Liège, because that's my favorite race of the year. Nice. I, 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 yes, I think your answers are good. Amstel Gold, I feel like for some reason, pops a little bit more with the women than the men. For some reason, the course... Like it kind mm. of, I think, pulls out like the talent of the women's peloton, and then the men can tend not to be a, a fantastic race for whatever reason. Mm. I agree. I think Amstel Gold is always really unpredictable for the women, which makes it really exciting, and it can go so many different ways. Uh, it's one of my favorite races. I, I, yeah, I really enjoy it as well. So I'm excited for it this year. Yeah. All right. Well, we well, it's late for you. We want to respect your your monkish Past tradition time, time of sleeping. Beauty sleep. Yeah. So we'll we'll let <laughs> I'm you. I'm gonna go. wake up tomorrow with wrinkles because <laughs> I haven't got my beauty sleep. It's like <laughs> she looks a little tired at Amstel. What's going on? Oh no, the sleep. <laughs> she ate four years overnight. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let you go. Do you? And where should people follow you uh, when they're not watching you racing? I'm on Instagram at Arctic Fox. You can find me. Um, I post most of my updates there from yeah, personal and professional life. So tune in. Well, thanks, Kristen, for, for donating your time. You've been very generous. Yeah, thank you, guys. And thanks for listening, everybody. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.